The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. April 24th, 2020. What's the big takeaway from this week? Well, we're in George Orwell Animal Farm Territory. All animals are essential, but some animals are less essential than others, at least in the barnyard ruled by Andrew Cuomo. I get it. Uh, Even with the $600 check and the $1,200 check and the unemployment insurance benefit is not enough. I understand the economic hardship. We all feel it. The question is, what do you do about it? And do you put public health at risk? So they're saying that, is there a fundamental right to work if the government can't get me the money when I need it? Is there yeah, a you fundamental go, by the way, right you want to go to work? Go take a job as an essential worker. Do it tomorrow. Right? You're working. I am. You're an essential worker. So go take a job as an but, essential but, worker. But the people aren't hiring because of the No, pandemic. there are people hiring. You can get a job as an essential worker. So now you can go to work and you can be an essential worker and you're not going to kill anyone. Gee, thanks. So essential workers don't kill people and non-essential workers do. Good to know. With the exception of one year in the so-called private sector, Andrew Cuomo has spent his entire life in public service, the essential sector. And he's a multimillionaire from it. So if you can't get a state-designated essential job, sit home and wait for that $1,200 check, which, like Billy Bunter's postal order from his matron, Peter, is due to arrive any day now. $1,200? What you bitching about, says the multimillionaire. Just six weeks ago, we had 57 genders, but suddenly it's all very binary. Essential, non-essential. And as Commissar Cuomo just demonstrated, there's a lot of non-essential phobia about. From my non-essential confinement to yours, it's your Stein Show Coronacopia. Please release me, let me go. Sing it with me, you non-essential losers. Please 
it's getting to me. Happy belated Anzac Day to our Australian and New Zealand listeners. Happy Ramadan to our Muslim listeners. Is it me or does Ramadan come round earlier every year? That's uh, that's my traditional Ramadan joke. I've been doing it for 20 years now, so don't all sharpen your scimitars. Back to the lockdown lament. The lockdown is no longer tenable. Um, In America, that is. Other countries seem to quite like it. In Britain, the nightly prostrations before the National Health Service uh, seem to have become the equivalent of the Islamic call to prayer. Do you have to kneel in the direction of the Ministry of Health and stick your bottom in the air with a rectal thermometer poking out of it? Uh, My old mucker James Dellingbold tweeted the other day that he's wondering where to emigrate to because he thinks all that will be left of the UK is, quote, a gigantic parasitical NHS and tiny failed economy attached, unquote. Uh, But he seems to be uh, a bit of an outlier among his fellow uh, denizens of the UK. I saw a news guy talking about the economy being in suspended animation, as if you can stick it in the deep freeze on March the 1st and come back and thaw it out in August, September, and it will just be as it was. The economy isn't Brigadoon, where it magically reappears from the scotch mists a hundred years from now exactly as you left it Uh, an economy closed down is like a house that's abandoned or a car that's up on bricks in the backfield the longer it goes the more it decays and mold and weeds and rust creep in so you can't shut down every major economy except gee golly China's and expect it still to be there just as it was six months later. So governments can only take the unprecedented measure, unprecedented in human history, of shutting down the world if they get, as I believe the uh, vigorous American vernacular has it, their ass in gear. Uh, Unfortunately, the American vernacular is vigorous, but its governments and bureaucracy aren't. And as I said on Rush all those weeks ago now, in the end, it's all about the bureaucracy. For example, Andrew Cuomo plays a pretty good chief executive on TV for two hours every day, but he's a garbage chief executive once he's off the telly. If you're one of those non-essential losers and you want his state unemployment benefits, his Department of Labour is one of those rusted-up cars on bricks. Quote, the whole thing is a complete Kafkask mess, says Brooklyn resident Courtney Henley, who once upon a time ran media events for small businesses. Kafkaesque, that's something else to said on Rush. Kafka remains in print, uh, not because anyone's interested in insights into bureaucracy in the kingdom of Bohemia over a century ago, but because those insights into Bohemian bureaucracy are entirely relevant to American bureaucracy in the third millennium. Courtney, Courtney Henley, who began attempting to file for benefits while recovering from COVID-19 last month, is still unable to log into the website or reach a Department of Labor representative for assistance. She's been trying to get through to get those few hundred dollars for a month and a half, and the only means of communication, the website, the switchboard, are as dysfunctional as they were when the lockdown began. They have had six weeks to get up to speed and have failed. How many more weeks and months do they get to... 
uh, try to enable Courtney Henley to log in or get through on the phone. Then there's the federal bureaucracy, which is a particularly repulsive combination of uh, incompetence, decadence and corruption. We were told when the Kennedy Centre got 45 million in the first corona boondoggle and then laid off all its musicians anyway, we were told to relax. That's just the price of doing business in Congress. And hey, 45 mil is a rounding error in a 2.5 bazillion dollar spending bill. But it wasn't an anomaly. It's standard operating procedure, even in global lockdown. So right now, if you run a bar or a hair salon, you can't get into this payroll protection program because COVID relief has turned into just the usual dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt Washington racket. The Ritz-Carlton hotels in Lake Tahoe, St. Thomas and the like uh, got a combined $59 million because, it said, uh, their respective corporate masters managed to game the system. But you don't have to game this dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt system. It's set up to be that way. Under the CARES Act, uh, another corona boondoggle, dozens of universities with gazillion-dollar endowments, in other words, among the wealthiest institutions on the planet, are awash in gravy. The hideously corrupt... Pennsylvania State University, home of vanity litigant Michael E. Mann and his drooping hockey stick, Penn State got $55 million. In the wake of Penn State's child rape scandal, the university paid out $109 million to victims of Jerry Sandusky, the serial child rapist they protected for years. So COVID-19 is a real windfall for Penn State, just like that. They've got a cash infusion wiping out half of their child rape losses. This is the only way Washington knows how to work. And we put up with it by just getting on with our lives, going to work, having a drink with friends, going to our favourite pass, the joint, catching a movie, catching a ball game. And now they've said, no, from now on, you can't get on with your lives, but we're going to get on with ours and with business as usual. Remember Iraq? Shock and awe, baby. And then the long, slow bleed that comes after winning the war when you just settle down to losing the peace. With the lockdown... America shock and awed itself with the American people on the receiving end. And now comes the long, slow bleed of waiting for your $1,200 check while the Ritz-Carlton is already burning through their millions and has already laid off 95% of its staff. Of trying to get through to Andrew Cuomo's Department of Labor while he tells you to be grateful for your 600 bucks. People will accept a week of lockdown, two weeks three weeks. But when it gets to two months and a vast bloated bureaucracy that can't process your check has no solution other than more lockdown, free people's chafe. You can never shovel enough trillions in to fill the hole when you're still digging the hole and most of the trillions are going to all the rich connected types like the Ivy League and the luxury hotels. These are dignified as stimulus programs, but there's nothing to stimulate if you're still closed down. So no matter how many trillions you print, you will always come up a dollar short. If plan A was a month of lockdown and plan B was two months of lockdown and plan C is four months of lockdown, if that's all you've got, enough. 
And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. After our excursion to Belfast, we return to the original constabulary of the modern world, Sir Robert Peel's Metropolitan Police. Michael Segalov is a journalist. I don't know him, don't read him. He appears to be of the lefty persuasion, but he was out taking his state-approved daily exercise once a day in a London park when he saw a young lady being hustled away despite protesting her innocence and despite repeating over and over, I'm not resisting being roughly manhandled by the coppers. So he got out his cell phone camera to record the incident and followed the officers through to the edge of the park, at which point Big Brother started barking at him through the loudspeakers of a police van. Immediately, coppers swarmed around him and, breaking all social distance rules, informed him that as he had ceased exercising in order to record their activities, he was now obligated to go home because he did not have a valid reason for being outside his premises. He replied that he was a journalist. Uh, in fact, what he's doing is the right of any citizen. Uh, and so a cocksure sergeant, Gary Brown, officer number 3058, took charge. You are exercising or you go indoors? Video me, look. Sergeant Gary Brown, 3058, go home. Can we just stay two meters? Go home. I'm trying. Go home. Go home. You get fined. Go home now. You're going to find me. I'm asking. I don't understand. I was walking past. I'm a journalist. I saw an incident. I don't care I wanted what to you make are. sure it was okay. Go home. I was. You're all very close You're to me. You're killing people. I'm not. Go I'm going for what? You're coming you close to me. I'm trying to. I'm now surrounded okay, by five in. people. Off you go. Right, Goodbye. You. 3058 you, Gary Brown. Yeah, Bye. Thanks, Goodbye. You're killing people, says Sergeant Brown, which would be a serious accusation if it weren't the sergeant and his constables breaching the two-metre rule and getting in Mr. Segalov's face uh, to exhale their tyrannous breath upon him. Excuse me? I love that loudspeaker. The anonymous Jobsworth in his government vehicle ordering the citizens around. To go back to what I was saying about the lockdown, we now have a nanny state where nanny is a psycho she-vixen in a steel-tipped basque. She can't do any of the nannying stuff, like get you your promised government benefits, but she can do all the police state stuff. Uh, including, as we've seen in America, handcuffing fathers while playing in an empty park with their daughters and frog-marching away single moms. And meanwhile, the drones fly overhead, monitoring, monitoring, monitoring. Soon they'll have a drone for every citizen, won't they? In Britain, the police reveal every day why they cannot be trusted with their extraordinary powers. Even though the strutting little tin pot tyrant on this tape well knows he has nothing to fear from any cell phone footage. Our Brit wanker copper of the day, Sergeant Gary Brown of the Metropolitan Police. Jazz, Frank Sinatra, good old-fashioned rock and roll. 
Fill your ears with all sorts of music curated by Mark Stein himself at Stein Online. Music plays on at Stein Online through exclusive Mark Stein show performances. There's a kind of hush all over the world tonight. Biographies of great performers and songwriters and Mark's On the Town audio specials. Are we really happy with this lonely game we play? Chuck Berry to Cole Porter, Ted Nugent to Johnny Mercer. New specials added regularly. Put some records on by heading over to www.steinonline.com music. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Yesterday, St. George's Day, is also the day traditionally observed as William Shakespeare's birthday, April 23rd, 1564. It's also rather more definitely the day of his death, April 23rd, 1616. So I thought it would be appropriate in this locked-down world to have a Shakespeare sonnet. Uh, the seasons run through the 154 sonnets of the quarter of 1609. Sonnet 18, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And then comes autumn in sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayst in me behold When yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold. And Sonnet 97, how like a winter hath my absence been. But the spring sonnet, Sonnet 98, gets shorter shrift. Mary Westmacott thought enough of the opening line to use it for the title of a novel, Absent in the Spring. Uh, who's Mary Westmacott? Uh, a norm de plume of Agatha Christie, who was uh, rather partial to Shakespearean titles. But the sterner critics do not share Dame Agatha's enthusiasm for Sonnet 98. They seem to think this is like a filler track on an album. Um, it is actually a familiar theme of popular songs. Spring is here, I hear, to quote Rogers and Hart. But it doesn't seem like spring because I'm not with you, so it might as well still be winter. That's basically it. Yet poems can be transformed by context. I have had two views of the spring of 2020 put to me in recent weeks. One, that it is the most intense, springiest spring anyone can ever recall. Correspondents quarantined in country hideaways professed to be staggered by this or that flora or fauna which they had never noticed before because they were up in town networking at the gym or a favourite restaurant. Conversely, others tell me the glories of spring depress them because they are cut off from dear friends, so that when buds bloom and the season of renewal and rebirth is upon the land, it only reminds them of how weird this time is and how disconnected our man-ordered lockdown world is from the season's and the cycles of the natural world. I sort of incline more to the latter. So like Shakespeare, I am both absent in the spring and the spring is absent in me. The reference to Saturn you're about to hear is to the planet's association at the time with sullen lethargy. And that too seems relevant. By William Shakespeare, as enumerated in the quarto of 1609, sonnet number 98. From you have I been absent in the spring, when proud-pied April, dressed in all his trim, hath put a spirit of youth in everything, that heavy Saturn laughed and leapt 
with him. Yet nor the lays of birds, nor the sweet smell of different flowers in odour and in hue, could make me any summer's story tell, or from their proud lap pluck them where they grew. Nor did I wonder at the lily's white, nor praise the deep vermilion in the rose. They were but sweet, but figures of delight, drawn after you, you pattern of all those. Yet seemed it winter still, and you away, as with your shadow I with these did play. A poem from Me to You, the 98th sonnet by William Shakespeare, whose birth and death we mark at the end of this April week. As with your shadow, I with these did play. And if you are playing with shadows of those absent in the spring, let us hope for better times come summer. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Jeff Johnson, a Colorado member of the Mark Stein Club, writes, Mark, thanks for another enlightening and entertaining coronacopia. Please keep them coming. Is all of this a fire sale of the West? Did I awake from a coma during which we lost a war to China and to the victors go the spoils? Do you find it ironic that in the year 2020, one cannot see evidence of hindsight, insight or foresight from our leaders, our media or many of our fellow citizens? That's true, Jeff. The media's promotion of what the BBC calls the, quote, official line from the WHO uh, is weird, is weird, especially when official means uh, China bought and paid for. If this is a war, as Boris and President Trump have suggested it's a war in which Tokyo Rose and Law Hawhaw have been put in charge of the domestic press. Most odd. As for whether you've awoken from a coma during which we lost the war to China, there are certain things that are rather odd about this so-called global pandemic. I'm going to say a bit more about this next week. But the models are garbage, as we know. Why are the models garbage? Uh, I think one reason is that this thing's not behaving like a global pandemic. Right now, the Wu flu is in 226 sovereign nations and dependent territories. That's colonies, as we old school guys say. So it's pretty much everywhere except a few South Pacific islands. But it is oddly distributed. Three nations account for half the just under 200,000 deaths worth worldwide. America, Italy and Spain. That's 100,000 of the approximately 200,000 deaths. Another three nations account for another quarter of the worldwide deaths. France, the UK and rather bizarrely Belgium. So of those 200,000 worldwide deaths, just six highly developed Western nations account for 150,000 of them, and the other 220 countries and territories account for the rest, which is why it's not such a big deal there. COVID-19 is quite contagious as these things go, so you might expect it to burn through the poorest and densely populated places, the favelas 
of Latin America, the great coastal megalopolises of West Africa, the slums of Bombay and Calcutta, or places where a large number of the people have compromised immune systems, uh, such as South Africa, where huge numbers of people are infected with HIV. But in fact, where it's devastating, it seems very precisely targeted, even within countries. Northern Italy, uh, the country's economic engine, not the poorer South. London, the financial capital of Europe, rather than Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland. Brussels, uh, which isn't an important place in any sense, except that it happens to be the capital of the European Union. Whether or not this thing came out of a bat or a wet market or the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it has the happy benefit for Beijing of being most lethal to the Politburo's economic rivals, America and Europe. In other words, in other words... If you were going to weaponize a virus, this is what it would look like. To be sure, Germany's doing okay, but that's, you know, like the fourth plane on 9-11. The best laid plan doesn't hit every target. Let's say you did what China did after it knew about COVID-19. It quarantined Wuhan from the rest of the country, yet kept the Wuhan airport open to export the virus to the rest of the world. That's what China did. That's a fact. It's not racist to say so. China did that. But most importantly, it managed to export that virus most effectively to its principal economic uh, rivals. For whatever reason, the virus has been most effective to the point where six virtue-signaling prime Western targets account for three-quarters of the worldwide deaths. China launched it, and as you say, Jeff, we turned it into a civilizational fire sale. Maybe the models are junk because they were done by doctors, and they were looking at COVID-19 as a typical non-discriminatory disease. And it's behaving uh, in a way that suggests it has priorities beyond that. Odd. We'll have more on this next week. Mark Stein's Last Call. We have been told that many COVID-19 deaths have taken place in care homes, retirement homes, assisted living facilities. Uh, they were only recently folded into the French death statistics. They're not included yet in the UK statistics. Spain looks like a horror story on that front. And such deaths apparently count for a quarter of all New York City fatalities. This is a snapshot of a few days at one such home. And now, friends, we've come to the end of another season here in the Gulf Screen Guild Theatre. A happy one for all of us, I assure you. And on this occasion, we're honored by a visit from one of the best-loved people in all America. She's here beside me now, Hollywood's favorite lady, Mary Pickford. Thank you, Roger, and thank you, my friends. I'm here tonight on a very important mission. I come not as Mary Pickford, but as a representative of the entire motion picture industry. Tonight, you know, marks the end of our third season of Gulf Screen Guild Theatre broadcast. During the past three years, 
Gulf has contributed generously to the Motion Picture Relief Fund, making possible the building of a home to provide for the aged and needy of our industry. America's sweetheart and Canada's own, Mary Pickford, together with her husband, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, Cecil B. DeMille, D.W. Griffith and others, Miss Pickford founded the Motion Picture Relief Fund in 1921. And that home for the aged and needy in her industry still operates under what's now known as the Motion Picture and Television Fund. On April the 6th, Mary Pickford House, the fund's long-term care facility, reported its first death from the Chinese coronavirus. John Breyer, aged 64 and a long-time member of Local 174 of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. The following day brought news of Alan Garfield, a character actor rarely out of work. He played police chief Lutz to Eddie Murphy's Beverly Hills Cop. Here he attempts to fire Murphy and his fellow mavericks. It doesn't go well for him. Looks like a goddamn war zone. What in hell have you done here, Tagger? Tell me. We solved the alphabet crimes. You shut up! Who the hell is talking to you? I personally solved the alphabet case up in a body bag over an hour ago. And you? I don't give a goddamn what federal agency you say you're working for. You're in jail, buddy. Chief, wait a Shut up! What the hell do you think you're doing here, bringing down a firefight in the middle of my city? You're out of the cop business for good, forever. Will you just listen a minute? Shut up! You shut your mouth once and for all. No, goddammit, you shut up! This is what the alphabet crimes are all about. Guns! Guns? That guy sold them and then bought them with stolen money from Adriano's and his own racetrack. He was on his way to Central America. And if you'd bother to take your head out of your ass, you'd see we'd stop the whole goddamn thing! You watch yourself! Just a minute, Lutz. Why didn't I know about this? Because Chief Lutz doesn't have the guts to hear the truth from real cops. That's why we had to go undercover with Detective Foley to solve this case. That cuts it, Taggart. You're fired! Yeah? You're fired, too! Lutz. Isn't that right? I think I've just about had it with your abusive attitude. I'm sorry, I get carried away. I'm sorry. You are fired. Do you understand that? Don't overreact, Ted, please. You're fired. I want you out of here now. Get out of here! Fired! You'll regret this, Ted. Alan Garfield co-starred in The Candidate, in Nashville, in Dick Tracy, and a lot of other films you might not have heard of, but which were important to him. He struck an artful balance. Don't you hate the word when you say well, it's a business? I hate that word. It's yeah. not a business. It's well, an art. It, artistic things is not a it, business. Well, you know something, Alan, I don't I, like. I, I, I used to. Th I used to think. I used to be insulted when anybody also called it a business. I hate it. But do you know something, Skip? I think it's also incumbent. It's also incumbent on the actor, if he is to be out there in this real harsh, artistic, artistic beautiful, beautiful world, world, to also not be oblivious of the business side, but to but to be so uh, isolated uh -huh. in just the artistic bit. Yes and removed from the business side, you can have an actor with a multitude of talent mm -hmm. wind up, by his own inadvertency, be overlooked professionally yes. if he is not tuned in to some aspects of the business world. I see. Yes.
Dead of the Chinese coronavirus on April the 7th at the age of 80, Alan Garfield. The second star to the right shines in the night for you To tell you that the dreams you planned really can come true The second star to the right shines with a light so rare And if it's Neverland to me, this light will be Anne Sullivan arrived at Walt Disney in the 50s and worked in the animation paint lab on, among many others, Peter Pan. She quit the industry to raise a family, then worked for Hanna-Barbera and returned to the Mighty Mouse to bring her skills to the Disney Renaissance on films like The Little Mermaid, Pocahontas and The Lion King. To the stars sail through our trouble. Some have to live with the Dead of the Chinese coronavirus on April the 13th, three days after her 91st birthday, Anne Sullivan. The cinematographer Alan Davio went a long way back with Steven Spielberg, back to 1968, and Spielberg's uh, short film, but a very attention-getting film, Amblin. Uh, among his many Oscar nominations were a trio of Spielberg films, The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, and E.T. The last, Davio recalled, was a particular challenge. He, he was very concerned about E.T. because here he was doing a movie which basically starred a rubber doll. And how right. was it not to be perceived as a rubber doll? And he knew we had to keep it in your E.T. in the dark for a great deal the beginning of the film. And it was only as we all got to know him that we began to see him more and more. And uh, it, it was the kind of thing of... Um, I would go over to Carlo Rambaldi's place, and Carlo was building E.T., and um, you know, I, I would borrow a friend's Aeroflex. <laughs> he, he later says, you should buy me a new Aeroflex. <laughs> I would borrow his and, and shoot footage of, of E.T., and it was always in the beginning, um, no matter how low-key I thought it was, he was, no, it's too bright, it's too bright. So we developed a technique of keeping E.T. in the dark. Basically, he was always backlit. He would have a glow in his eye. He would have just a tiniest little bit of bounce light on him, and, and that's the E.T. that you met at the beginning of the film. And it was, uh, it was, it was quite something. People to this day say to me, well, God, you could do it so much better now because you'd do it CGI. And I go, let me ask you something. If it was CGI, what would uh, Drew Barrymore have had to look at at age six? Hey, Drew, just look at this spot on the green, the green backing. No, she had a real creature there. All the kids had a real creature to look at and communicate with. Alan Davio's favorite scene in E.T. was the one in which Elliot, played by young Henry Thomas, says, I'm keeping him. The aforementioned... Miss Drew Barrymore walks forward 
There are highlights in E.T.'s eyes, no detail in the face, and the light is yellow. The effect, said Davio, very much that of a Maxfield Parish painting. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus on April the 15th at the age of 77, the cinematographer Alan Davio phoned home. This right here is a career in television. 77 77 Sunset Strip and... The Virginian and... Ironside and... P.I. and Night Rider, a shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. Night Rider, Joel Rogosin produced all of those and many more. of the Chinese coronavirus on April 19th at the age of 87, Joel Rogosi. Five deaths out of 162 residents at the Motion Picture and Television Fund's retirement. Within just two weeks. One building, one virus that reaches out down the corridor to touch Beverly Hills Cop, The Lion King, E.T., Magnum P.I., three generations of American pop culture. Death will be an awfully big adventure, says Peter Pan, but not really, not so much when COVID-19 breathes on Mary Pickford House. We will have more movies and more music with me and Kathy Shadle at Stein Online over the weekend. Hope you'll check us out. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time another edition of The Mark Stein Show.
Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Reserved.